This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is February 9th, 2023. I'm Ian Bushfield. Joining me today is BC Today's new-ish reporter, Alec Lazenby. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Ian. No problem. It's good to have you here. Scott's away for work reasons. Uh, and I thought I'd have you in because you've replaced Shannon Waters. And it, you know, we work well with BC Today. We love the content there. And given the big political news of the week, the throne speech... It feels appropriate to bring you on and break down everything happening in provincial politics now that it's kicking up again. Yeah, for sure. It's definitely been a big week this week with lots of announcements, especially with spring session kicking into gear. So happy to be on the show and hopefully break down some stuff. Yeah, so we'll get into all of that. We'll also get into some of the other fundraising news, some of the healthcare deal that was the reason David Eby wasn't actually there for his first throne speech. Uh, but first, we'll talk a little bit about you. And even before all of that, I do have to remind all our listeners to support the podcast at patreon.com slash politicoast. Now, Alec, before we get into talking about the throne speech, why don't we talk a little bit about you? Like, what is your background? How did you get into provincial politics? How did you get into the job you're in today? For me, it's been a little bit of a whirlwind um, last year, last six months. So I was actually a student reporter as of a year and a half ago. And then I left that in December uh, 2021, uh, got a job with Capital Daily, also very topical in the news right now. Um, and I was an intern there for four months while I was finishing up my history and political science degree at uh, UVic. And so I did that while writing my thesis, while uh, running the History Undergraduate Journal. So that was a lot. Uh, and then I graduated and really took some time off just to relax after a five-year degree and uh, get some time to spend time with my partner and do things that we didn't get to do while we were in school. And then I started looking for jobs. I looked at two jobs that I thought I was more likely to get, to be perfectly honest. Um, and then I sort of applied for this job on a whim um, and then went through several rounds of interviews and eventually got the job. It's honestly a dream job for me, being so soon out of school and um, working in the legislature. So, yeah, it's it's definitely been a good time, a big learning curve for sure, but I've been enjoying it. Has it been six months already? Yeah, August. Wow. <laughs> we should have had you on way sooner than this. I'm sorry. <laughs> No, all good. All good. Honestly, I, I feel like my first, the fall session, I was just trying to get my legs under me and get used to everything. It's a lot coming at you really quickly. So definitely, I feel like now I've got more of a sense of everything that, that's happened in a way that I didn't before. It's so funny how you started with like a change in premiere. And when Shannon started, I'm pretty sure and when the newsletter started, it was right around the 2017 election or just after I think it was right as John Horgan was sworn in. So you both kind of thrown into the deep end of political drama in this province. Uh, 
how, you know, how has that been as like starting in a new role, having to sort out all these new characters? I mean, I feel like it's almost been easier in a way. I think Shannon definitely had a little bit of a rougher time having to start the newsletter, not having that built up before, and then also dealing with, you know, the craziness of the 2017 election, the um, confidence and supply agreement between, you know, the Greens and the NDP. Uh, I feel like for me, it's more, it's basically the same government, it's basically the same ministers. Obviously, we had a cabinet shuffle um, in December. But a lot of the key figures are the same. Um, EB obviously has been in government for since 2013. So there's that. He's, you know, been part of that um, first in the opposition and now um, in government and now premier. So I feel like it's more of a continuation. Obviously, EB's style is different from Horgan's, but it's not a complete change. Have there been any highlights? Or things that you've like really liked or enjoyed covering? I, uh, I like the nitty gritty things. I, I really enjoy uh, delving deep into reports. I really enjoy delving into financial figures, although the healthcare deal, which we'll talk about later, was a little painful this re- week. Um, Katie DeRose and I spent about 45 minutes to an hour going back and forth on numbers, trying to figure them out. Uh, we got there in the end, but uh, that was... Definitely not a math major. So that was uh, definitely a bit of a shift for me. But I, I enjoy I enjoy the technical elements, which I guess is good being a political reporter. And what are you looking forward to developing or covering in the coming months and years, or as long as you end up in this role, or even just are interested in BC politics? I think the main thing that I'm interested to see is just the difference in style. and maybe results, maybe not in terms of E.B. and Horgan, because they're two very different people um, heading heading up the NDP government. And you've got the wild card of Kevin Falcon coming in um, and trying to rebuild the BC Liberals, soon to be BC United brand. And so it's just sort of figuring out where that's going to go. I'm on the side that I don't think there is going to be a provincial election um, prior to the next scheduled date um, in 2024, but just in the lead up to that, because EB has come out of the gate with lots of announcements, but the proof will be in whether those announcements amount um, to actual results um, for people in BC. And how, this is just my last question before we pivot into actual politics, how has the welcome been from the rest of the press gallery and the politicians that you have to grill and cover on a daily basis? Um, definitely in terms of the press gallery, it's been great. Um, I was definitely thinking that there was going to be a little bit more of a competitive element um, here, but I've been really thankful that for the most part, that's not been the case. Obviously, we're all digging for stories. We're all looking for different angles, different things to cover, breaking news, all of this. But it, we all really help each other out in a lot of ways. So if somebody doesn't get a press release, we'll forward it to each other, whatever else. And I just, I really like that team environment because at the end of the day, we're just trying to cover as we can. And obviously, honestly, if we work together, um, we can create better stories, hold the government to account better than we were if we were all at each other's throats in the ways that I've heard some other provinces um, are. So it's it's been really refreshing, uh, to be perfectly honest. 
And how have the politicians treated you? Uh, in terms of the politicians, definitely uh, there's a wide range of politicians. We have a lot of MLIs. Um, and so def- definitely, but it's just honestly nice to get to know some of them as real people. Um, and I know we'll be talking about Selena Robinson later. And people, uh, Selena, Selena was great. My first uh, press conference, uh, it was August or September or something and uh, out in Langford and I asked a question like brand new nervous and so asked the question went well and then Selena at the end of the press press conference came up and went out of her way to introduce me and welcome me and honestly that's really refreshing obviously our jobs are to hold people to account but it was just kind of really nice to, to see that and, and get that warm welcome. And then there's there's others who will turn and run at the first sign of media. But that's that's really part and part and parcel of uh, what we do here. Part and parcel of the job. Great. Well, I think that's a great point to pivot and talk about Selena Robinson just very briefly. I mean, the big news she announced this week is that uh, her cancer is back. And so... You know, I think everyone's got her in their thoughts and is wishing her well. I've seen a lot of praise from her over the past few weeks, even before this announcement, uh, as, uh, you know, she lost the high-profile cabinet portfolio of the finance ministry, um, but is still, I think, pretty widely respected. So everyone's hoping she beats it. For sure. And I think, honestly, say what you will about hers in MLA, obviously there's a lot of different opinions on that her as well but I, she is easily one of the nicest people that I've met in the legislature and so um, you saw that in the response that all sides of the aisle had in wishing her well after she got her diagnosis and uh, some liberal MLAs are even talking about joining her on her uh, bicycle race uh, bicycle trip this summer um, to raise money for cancer research which is uh, nice to see Absolutely. Uh, And not cancer news, because he's cancer-free, he announced today, but John Horgan also had some big news today as he announced he is retiring. He's going to step down as an MLA in March, but he did a big speech this afternoon in the legislature, basically bidding adieu to the chamber. Although, as you mentioned to me just before the pod, he's not allowed to say in the chamber that he was retiring. So it was a little bit weird watching this speech that was clearly retirement speech, but he did not say, and I'm quitting. For sure. And definitely that was just the way the legislature works, the way the rules work. Um, he couldn't say flat out that he was quitting until he came and spoke to media after he left the chamber. Um, but it was definitely interesting to see him in the chamber again, added some color to uh, the proceedings. Uh, I know for sure that everyone was listening and amused at certain points, especially when he said that Public Safety Minister Mike Barnworth had been in the legislature since before the time of electricity. That was that was a good point. He, yeah, it was a 30-minute speech that rambled on at times, that was hard to follow at times, but that's pure Horgan, right? Like, he just goes off the cuff. He had these notes that you could see from the press gallery, like the press viewing area, that it looked like he had written in Sharpie. And he had probably about 20 or 30 pages of notes in big font, big Sharpie font that he read from 
as he was doing his speech and he covered everything from his time in grade one as the king of hearts, his first uh, political uh, position, he said, and all the way to, you know, being back in private life, which he is honest, he has admittedly spent most of his time taking care of his wife, Ellie, who broke her leg actually soon after he left the premier's office. And so he was joking that uh, he still sees the issues with supply chains because he's looking for icing sugar and can't find any. And then, you know, Kevin Falcon wasn't in the House today, but uh, Todd Stone, liberal House leader, gave gave a good speech uh, praising Horgan. Uh, so did Premier Eby. And so did uh, Sonia Firstenau, uh joking that uh, if uh, Horgan had become a page when he had the opportunity in eighth grade, then maybe Ellie would have been premier. So it was definitely a lighthearted, lighthearted affair in a place that doesn't have too many of those. So it was nice to see. Yeah, it was quite the touching moment. And it was pure like John Horgan, aw shucks, dad moments and, you know, joking about his more aggressive days, but how much he appreciated getting along with everyone. So a return to private life is probably something he's really looking forward to. He mentioned how long he's been in the legislature, both as, you know, a politician and as a staffer before that, and it's been decades. So retirement sounds nice. (laughs) Definitely. Although he hasn't uh, ruled out that if uh, Prime Minister Trudeau comes at him with an appointment offer, he's left himself very open to accept that. But uh, besides that, he says he's done with politics. He's also left himself open to working for the Canucks, too, I think he said. Yes, uh, yes, Francesco Aquilini, if you're uh, listening to this, uh, John Horkin is always ready to join the organization. I'm sure he can uh, bring some tools to the table. Well, let's get into the substantive political comment. This week, the throne speech kicked off the session at the start of the week. This is David Eby's first throne speech as premier, although, as I mentioned off the top, he was in Ottawa because the Liberals chose that date, unfortunately, for BC to have their big uh, first minister's meeting that he absolutely could not miss. And so a little awkward when the premier's not in the house for that speech, but the premier doesn't give it. The lieutenant governor does. So no no foul there. Throne speeches are always so painful to listen to for me. Like I've read through a number now, and increasingly they're just like platitudes and backpatting about how great they have done as government or, you know, whether new or old, and just like some vague allusions to things that might be done. Um, so, Alec, what are the vague allusions we're looking at over the next year? So, First of all, I just want to say something about uh, Evie not being there for the speech. It's kind of funny because he was in Ottawa the 1st and 2nd of February meeting with meeting with Trudeau and then had to fly back there for the meetings on the 6th and the 7th. Um, his staff were like, were not happy with that. Um, it basically threw his whole schedule. It's not easy to get to Ottawa. It's not yeah. easy to get to Ottawa. It's a four or five hour flight. And also being coming back here, going there, it kind of threw his entire schedule up in the air. But I mean, if he was going to go there and see a deal, he would be more than happy to because he's been pushing for that. And so was Horgan before him. So 
Um, honestly, I think he was just happy to be sitting at that table. But back to the throne speech. It's interesting because the speech was 26 pages. Uh, Janet Austin, the lieutenant governor, spent 40 minutes reading it out. And yet there was probably only about half a page of actual policy pronouncements or promises of things that they were going to do. Much of it was rehashing, you know, past uh, rebates, past um, action on healthcare, uh, climate change, uh, cost of living. So a lot of it was rehashing what the government has done since they came into office in 2017. So there were some interesting elements, which I don't know if we want to dig into a little further. Yeah. So at the broad overview, it was focused on, I framed it slightly different than their language because it gets a little too jargony or uh, propagandist if you just repeat the government's messaging, I find, but kind of this affordability slash, you know, surviving inflation, uh, housing, healthcare, public safety, and climate change, which shouldn't be surprising issues to anyone paying attention to, I think, what people care about and or what David Eby himself has been talking about since he announced he wanted to be premier. Let's start around the inflation and affordability question. There wasn't a lot of specific in there. Some of the stuff they've done has already been rolled out through uh, some of the tax credits and ICBC type rebates. But the new thing in there was an expansion to childcare, I think. Yeah, for sure. And I think that will come as, you know, a welcome thing to many parents who can see their uh, school aged children um, receiving money for their school aged children and helping them really save off the costs that come with uh, having kids and taking kids to different events, taking kids to school, feeding kids. And so I think that is definitely a welcome element that was in the throne speech. The issue with that is, is I think with these rebates, a lot of them, while they do provide a small amount of money to British Columbians, I feel like, and spend a lot of money in the government uh, money bank, but I feel like it's not really going to do a lot to help fix the affordability crisis just because, you know, it's going to be an ongoing thing until we fix, you know, inflation or the cost of housing or the cost of groceries. And so while those uh, rebates are nice, it's sort of more of a token here, we know you're struggling, as opposed to the real substantive changes that need to be had if people are going to, you know, get over um, the financial troubles that many, many find themselves. Yeah, it's like, it's a good expansion. Childcare is very top of mind on for me as I have one kid in daycare and soon by the end of the year two. And I just got my tax receipt for what I spent on daycare last year for that one kid, and it was $13,000. And it'll be half that this year because of rebates that they've put in place and some of those reductions. So it does make a huge difference to people with kids. And, you know, once your kids are in school, well, school closes at, you know, 2.30 or 3.30, but you're still working till five. So you still need a couple hours of care. So it's a smaller number of families that will help. And so, but it's part but there's still a lot, like I'm not paying $10 a day and a lot of families aren't paying $10 a day. So there's still a long way to go in the government's commitment to reaching 10 a day by, what, 2027? 
10 years after they were elected. Yeah, but I do think that, you know, the government's progress on $10 a day childcare has been huge for many families in terms of making sure, making childcare costs affordable, making daycare costs affordable. And so I feel like definitely it'll be a challenge to get to that point by 2027. But I feel like that's something that uh, the government is really focused on. That is one of their key policies that they've rolled out since 2017. And it's one of their policies that honestly, in the grand scheme of things, is closer to coming within reach. So I definitely feel like that will be something to keep an eye on. But definitely the credits and then the $10 a day childcare continuing to roll on uh, is making differences for lots and lots of families. You mentioned the key thing that people, though, need support on is housing. And there was some mention of uh changes to the approach on housing in the throne speech, right? There was a talk of a new, like an entirely new housing strategy to be rolled out. Do you want to uh, flesh that out? Like, what are they looking at with this? For sure. To be honest, they've been very vague in the details. I imagine we'll, we're going to get more details of that as the spring session rolls along, but they promised to refresh housing strategy as part of their plan to get um, more houses built to get uh, you know, middle-class houses, um, housing to get uh, supportive housing. And so I feel like EB with the new housing ministry, with the $500 million spent on um, allowing co- uh, co-ops and nonprofit housing organizations to buy up already established rental buildings with um, plans to legalize secondary suites, um, the Housing Supply Act, which is basically going to be a hammer on municipalities that don't want, for whatever reason, to um, keep up with the housing supply needs that they have. Uh, I feel like he's trying to build a variety of measures that really will help um, those houses come online. Uh, The issue is, is, is it coming fast enough and seeing vacancy rates of, you know, 0.9% in Vancouver, 1.5% in Victoria, especially in the large urban areas of the province, it's it's not coming fast enough. And housing prices, while they have started to fall because of rising interest rates, um, they're still way too expensive for many British Columbians. And that's going to be the challenge is, will these measures actually bring down the cost of housing? And I feel like, well, these measures will help in a lot of different areas. It's going to be, it, the key is going to be bringing down prices and certainly bringing up. Supply. Yeah, one of the things it looks like they're interested in, if I'm reading between the lines and in some of the stuff you had in the newsletter from Ravi Kalone, the house leader and housing minister, is this focus on transit-oriented housing or housing near transit hubs and possibly taking a big chunk of the $4 billion surplus that's left to be spent, as far as I can tell, and maybe putting a big chunk of that into just building TransLink-supported housing as they now have that authority to do. For sure. And that's definitely, I think, going to make a difference if they do get that online, because uh, just reducing costs in terms of transit, in terms of being able to walk to the grocery store, as opposed to um, driving, uh, maybe even busing to the grocery store instead of Instead of driving or taking more costly forms of transport, and I feel like that will help a lot. Um, 
but the issue is, is still no matter where you put it, you need supply. A lot of smaller communities are struggling um, with supply, with housing supply as well. Um, and so that is also causing issues in healthcare where you don't really have the space for more healthcare workers to move up there. They don't have the housing, they don't have the childcare, they don't have the services that really you need to build up um, that community. And so that will be definitely something to look out for. Another thing that I want to mention is um, the housing minister has also talked about tying housing funding um, and housing, um, sorry, immigration uh, funding and immigration levels to housing supply to really make sure that we're not bringing in more immigrants than we can adequately house. The issue with that is also that we need so many immigrants to build up our um, job space because, you know, with a stagnant um, population growth in terms of birth rates, um, we'll need, and lots of retirements, the baby boomer generation is starting to uh, finally, you know, move out of the workforce. And so that opens up a lot of jobs and a lot of jobs that need to be filled, especially in a jobs market that are that is already having issues with filling slots. And so that will be a challenge over the coming years, that, that need for immigration, but at the same time, making sure that we have the housing and services need, um, needed to um, make sure those immigrants have a good time of it uh, here in BC. Editor Jesse Woodward here. Alec lost his connection, and when he was reconnected, there was a significant shift in audio quality that I unfortunately couldn't do much about. But he sounds better, so enjoy! Well, and another big focus of the throne speech, building off of that, is healthcare. Uh, what, what are we looking at to fix the many crises affecting our public health system? So that's a big question with not an easy answer. Um, Definitely in terms of cancer care, which was a huge focus in the throne speech. It's about opening up, you know, specialists for seeing patients. It's about making, reducing wait times that have built up over the course of the pandemic, like it is with surgeries. And that's not going to be an easy fix, for sure. And that's the problems that affect the healthcare system as a whole is just the healthcare system has been deteriorating for years. And then the pandemic really came, came around and walloped it in a big way. And so that's going to be a huge issue for health minister, Adrian Dix and uh, premier David Eby as we continue on. And it's going to be interesting to see what their answers are because there isn't an easy one Obviously, we'll talk about the healthcare funding proposal um, from the federal government moving on uh, in this episode. But it's hard to see how they're going to get out of this. You hear stories on the daily of people waiting months to get cancer care. You hear stories about ERs shutting down in small communities throughout the province. Definitely the one in the news right now is Port Hardy, where the one... ER physician, Dr. Alex Nataros, has had his emergency privileges revoked for a period after calling for 
the resignation of the chief health officer of violent health. And so, and then there's calls for physician assistance to be brought in. The government has responded that they are working on internationally accredited doctors, and that's their response. But sort of at the moment, it seems like the government just needs to throw anything they can at the issue and and see what works, because currently what is happening is is not working and people aren't getting the care that they need. Well, and related to that are the continuing challenges facing mental health addictions and the toxic drug supply. We talked on last week's pod about the BC Liberal proposals that have come forward, but there's still, and it was mentioned in the throne speech that they want to do record investments in these kind of issues. But until we know what that looks like, and we'll probably see some of that come with the budget. I don't know, it's still frustrating, I guess, and it still looks like a in, intractable issue. And that's the problem with so many of the issues facing the province right now is there's not an easy solution. And despite the fact that the province has estimated anywhere between four billion and ten billion, depending on how you want to account it in terms of surplus, a lot of these issues can't be solved with just throwing money at the problem. If they were, they would have been solved a long time ago, as um, Liberal leader Kevin Falcon likes to say. But it's it's hard because there is no easy solution on mental health and addictions. Um, you hear the government talking continuously about the 3,200 treatment beds that they've opened, about their record investments um, into mental health and addictions, uh, decriminalization, prescribed safe supply. But the issue is, is that more people are dying than ever before. Um, you, This year wasn't a record, but it was close in terms of the number of overdose deaths in 2022. And the issue is, is right now people are waiting up to a month to get into a detox facility, up to six months to get into a treatment facility. The issue is, is that we really don't have a treatment system built up. Also, prescribed safe supply is great for the small number of people that can get access to it. The issue is, is you have many doctors who are reticent, understandably so, to give it out. At the same time, it doesn't meet people where they're at. A lot of people aren't able to get to regular doctor's appointments to get safe supply. And then you've got the whole argument of, well, you have a non-prescribed model of safe supply. And that sounds great, but then you get into the whole fact of, are we putting more drugs on the street, which... Well, not the opinion of experts is also a very valid concern. And so it's just, what what do we need? Do we need non-prescribed safe supply? Do we need, um, we definitely need better treatment systems. Where does involuntary treatment factor into that? Is, is that going to help at all? Or is that, as many say, going to cause more harm than good? And so I... I don't know where we go from here on that file, to be honest. Another issue is that the Ministry of Mental Health and Addictions doesn't 
have the funding or the mandate necessary to make whole scale changes. That comes from the Ministry of Health. And so really, um, first Sheila Malcolmson and now Jennifer Whiteside, it really is a thankless task at times, just being a political shield um, in terms of the decisions made um, by the government. And you ask the health ministry and they'll say that's not so, but really it's the health ministry that is driving these decisions and the Ministry of Mental Health and Addictions is sort of left behind wondering, you know, what can we do to actually fix a problem? Because everyone wants to solve this. That's not, it's not a question of will and wanting to solve this. It's just, where do we go? Well, what do we spend money on? You heard the government say that they don't have the data for, you know, how many treatment beds are needed or where they're needed um, for, you know, how people are going through the system. And so we're sort of running blind if we don't know what the outcomes are for people who are getting treatment. And I feel like that's sort of the logical next step is building up that data base of just figuring out what's needed and where in terms of treatment beds, in terms of detox centers, in terms of treatment facilities, um, figuring out, you know, how can we make prescribed safe supply reach more people? Because as the government says, it's about making sure people stay alive while waiting to seek treatment. And that's awesome, but we need to make sure that it's helping as many people as it can and getting them off the toxic drug supply. There's a couple other things mentioned in the throne speech that the government also wanted to touch on. There weren't a lot of specifics in here on public safety and continuing to move forward on that and climate change. One specific on climate change is allowing EV chargers in condos and stratas, which is one of those things that's like good and simple and should have been done, but is also like not the revolutionary change that I think a lot of green type green voters, not necessarily BC green, but environmental lists are looking for. And it's definitely interesting because I do think we will see more on the climate front. Um, over the course of this, maybe this session, maybe in the fall, but it's definitely disappointing for environmentalists who expected to see a massive shift, um, from EB, uh, when he came into office as premier. And so we haven't seen EB promised, um, a massive expansion in terms of fixing, um, and making sure that old growth trees weren't being cut down and um, furthering the old growth, um, old growth review. And we haven't really seen that. And so it'll be interesting to see what we do, what EV does on climate over the coming months. And EV chargers really just, it's, it's good, but it's also not the change that people were expecting. Yeah, there was a little bit of language in there about sort of a just transition plan for workers in forestry and oil and gas as those industries transition to uh, cleaner, more environmentally friendly approaches, as well as requiring polluters uh, to pay for orphan well type cleanup fees, which is long overdue. I know that's a huge issue in BC and Alberta when you have oil companies basically just walk away from their extraction sites and leave these environmental blights on the landscape so that's promising i think at least 
yeah, I do think that's that's promising, but it's also we have yet to see many details about how that's going to be done. And so you can say what you want in a throne speech, but at the end of the day, it's about how are we actually going to do this. And that's another one of those large-scale issues is we keep seeing jobs lost in forestry. And how are you going to, many of these people, that's all they've done for their entire lives. Some of them are close to retirement, which is great. You can help them move into retirement. But for others, retraining is a long process and an expensive process. And it'll be interesting to see how the government does that because a lot of small towns across the province are hurting right now because the industry that they rely on isn't isn't there anymore. And that's because of a variety of factors, but really it's it's about making sure that workers can find a job and get back into the workforce while also making sure that we're transitioning to a more sustainable the future. final promise that was in there, and I don't even know where to slot this, I would have had to pull the throne speech up to see where it came from, but it was just kind of... I came across this and I was like, that sounds good, but it really feels like a criminal code issue for the federal government. This EB wants to further ban the non-consensual sharing of explicit images, the kind of revenge porn stuff. That's good. Like, that's a good thing to do. But I'm, like, personally confused as to how, both why and how the province should will do it, because it is, as far as I know, banned under the criminal code, and that's a federal issue and i'm not one who gets sticky on jurisdiction usually but i just like don't do you do you know what they're doing with that or is that just out of nowhere i have no clue the first i heard of that was in the throne speech and yes great measure perfect very much needed um despite the fact it being banned under the federal criminal code it still happens with frightening regularity and so any way that the government can crack down on um, illicit image sharing, or as the government doesn't want us to call it, revenge porn, um, all the power to them. Like, that would be amazing. I would love to see more regulations, more cracking down on on that. But as you say, like, with jurisdictions, it'll be interesting to see what, if all, if at all, they can do. So that's the throne speech. We're also expecting 25 bills to come through this spring, which should be a fairly busy session. I'm not sure that that's a record number. It's definitely not Dave Barrett numbers, where it's like two bills a day kind of level. Um, feels That is definitely not a okay. record number. The record is in the 90s. And I don't <laughs> think that it's going uh, to be beat. But so... What what was the reaction to the throne speech, I guess? So you get the official speeches from the leader of the opposition and the third party, so Sonia Firstnow of the BC Greens, and then you also get their scrum reactions and their press releases and so forth. So obviously they disagree, but like what is their specific like attacks that are coming out? I think the attacks are pretty much the same across the board, which is where was the substance? And I mean, that is the complaint with throne speeches every year. But at the same time, with EB being within his first 100 days, you expected him to maybe come out with some bold plan in the throne speech or some bold policies, much as he has been making record levels of announcements over his first 100 days. Um, and we didn't see that. We saw very little substance in the throne speech, and 
Kevin Falcon's response was very much, well, the government has graded announcements, but where's where's the substance? Where's the reality? And I know the throne speech is just words. You're not going to govern in a throne speech. But, and there was some acknowledgement that things weren't rosy. It wasn't a rosy picture of throne speech. It was there's a recession on the horizon. People are struggling with healthcare, with cost of living, with all those things we just discussed, which was great. And the Greens, for sure, definitely complimented them on that. But hearing from both Falcon and First now, it was, okay, when is this government going to start governing? When are they going to actually, when are there going to be tangible results? We see all these announcements, we see all these policies, but within that, where is the definable metrics? Where are the benchmarks for seeing how successful this policy is going to be? And with a lot of the policies that the government has rolled out, we don't see that. We don't see how, how is this going to be successful? What is going to be the benchmark of this? And so definitely from both opposition parties, that was that was the subject of conversation, which was when is the government going to actually start governing instead of well, just spending time from my perspective what those critiques draw out is that this isn't a pre-election throne speech like there's no shortage of internet chatter and commentariat who are like desperate for a spring election or to believe that the ndp are about to like go to the polls and use like john horgan's imminent retirement as just part and parcel of that but i feel like if you're going to go to a snap election, you want to have some candy, <laughs> for lack of a better term, in your throne speech. Like, where are the specific promises that get people excited? There's not, there's nothing exciting in here. For sure. And I'm of the opinion that there isn't going to be a snap election. I talked about this earlier in the podcast, but I just, I don't see it. I don't, with the way that... EB is talking with the sorts of things that he is focusing on, building out his cabinet, building out a new ministry in the housing ministry. I don't see a snap election happening. I very much do feel like EB realizes that he needs the 18 months between his uh, taking over the premier's office and the next scheduled election to really deliver promises if he is going to return the NDP to a majority government in the next in the next election because Horgan was the most popular premier in the province's history. But the party, like the NDP as a party, has fallen massively in terms of opinion polling. And while that's not the only measure, and you can't just look at opinion polls and go, oh, this is how the next election is going to turn out. I do think that the party realizes, and EB especially so, that in order to make up for the popularity that was lost with Horgan when he exited, they need to make some real substantive changes um, in people's lives. And that, I feel like, is what EB is focused on. Obviously, we haven't seen much of that yet in terms of changes, but it's only been about 80 days. Um but that's what I think everyone is looking for over the next 18 months. And I feel like EB realizes that he can't just call a snap election right now and be assured. Well, before of a we victory. turn our attention slightly away from the legislature itself, I mentioned there's a plan for two dozen bills. We've already seen, I think, four drop, three or four uh, 
the most subs there's a miscellaneous statutes amendment act those are always fun because they do things like fix the what was the weird change in this one it fixes the community charter or the municipality act that require to require cities to actually inform people before they sell off their homes if you're in tax arrears which yeah. you would think that was required but apparently and that's why it's a miscellaneous uh, statutes amendment act it is a package of changes that are seemingly small scale or obvious changes that you've already expected to be in place that aren't because laws are weird and you'd think things that would be common sense aren't always there and that's the beauty of a miscellaneous statutes amendment act uh gotta love that inside baseball i'm sorry for anybody yeah. who oh it was shannon's favorite bill every time too <laughs> uh but on the i mean you know the more substantive bills the tr first major bill brought forward was to make truth and reconciliation day september 30th a statutory holiday in line with federally regulated workers and a few provinces and territories i think manitoba actually did do it as well as pei and a couple others i haven't remembered yeah, PEI, all of them uh new brunswick is weird new brunswick has made it like a public holiday but not a holiday across the board um yukon all the northern territories have made it a statutory holiday uh, and so it's sort of a common sense change, especially with September 30th already being the day, the national day for truth and reconciliation. And I think it's really a change that can be, you know, it's not controversial. It is not a controversial change to be making. You have some business owners who are unhappy that they've got another statutory holiday, but you don't really see a lot of griping. It's sort of, this is... You know, it's mainly a symbolic change towards reconciliation. It's not a massively substantive change, but it's important all the same. And so it was it was nice to see the government uh, introduce that. It was weird, actually, that Horgan, like, hemmed and hawed on it and didn't actually do it a year or two ago. So a nice, simple move forward. And January is a very good time to do it, to give notice for September and all the employers. Uh, let's talk about some money issues so elections bc and we'll go through this pretty quickly dropped the fourth quarter fundraising numbers for 2022 and they were actually rather interesting for many quarters in a row we'd seen the ndp blowing the liberals out of the water by you know two times or more in terms of how much they've been fundraising since the ndp brought in the donation limits and the ban on corporate union donations this quarter was the first time the Liberals were in the same league. Now, the NDP still out-fundraised at $1.3 to about $1.18 um, The Greens sat at about 418000 which is still a pretty impressive amount for a party that has two MLAs. So, like, they're not competing for government yet, but they're still a real party. Uh, the Conservatives, who exist raised $15,000. So that's not nothing, but it's not serious amounts. Uh, what I found really interesting is when I dug into the reports themselves, when you look at how many donors everyone has, the NDP had almost 10,000 donors, 9,681, the Liberals 3,500, and the BC Greens just under 3,000. So both the NDP and Liberals had 1,200 and 1,100 donors respectively who gave over 250. But the NDP made up a lot of money from the 8,500 people who gave under $250. And we don't get their names. That's why there's a cutoff there. 
So the liberals, it seems like Falcon was able to find some rich fans and squeeze them at the year end. And that doesn't really surprise me because it was something that Falcon would seem very confident about when I spoke to him for a year end interview in December. Uh, he was like, just wait till you see the fourth quarter funding numbers. We've massively caught up. So he sort of had an indication of this. I feel like there's several factors there. The liberals have not exactly had the best time of it um, over the last several years. Um, Wilkinson was not the most dynamic leader. Um, Clark was eminently unpopular in her last couple of years. And so, whereas Falcon sort of has seemed to have come in and bring this fresh approach and also rebranding, I don't know how much that ties into it, but that's something new that is happening. And also Falcon's a, you know, he's a private sector guy through and through. So he has lots of connections in that world who can bring in, bring in funding. They just had a massive fundraiser in Vancouver about a week or so ago. And so it's interesting to see um, the Greens also, not to sleep on the Greens. They also, their fundraising totals went up by about four times. They were uh, just over 100,000, and then now they're at 433,000. So it's, or over 400,000. Um, but yeah, for sure. So you definitely see the opposition parties getting more funding I think the NDP have sort of been caught up in getting EB into the office, getting everything sort of sorted, a new cabinet shuffle. So all of their organization has sort of been focused on that. And not that they've fallen off in terms of fundraising, but they've sort of remained static um, while the opposition parties have um, caught up. Yeah, we'll keep an eye on that, particularly as we go through the next year to see how much the Liberals and eventually BC United get a fundraising machine behind them because I suspect that was largely just Kevin Falcon making some good phone calls to start that. But Digging through his Rolodex. Exactly. I mean, it's where fundraising starts. Everyone starts to think, oh, you need this strong machine. And yes, that helps. But if you just know rich people, that's like 80% of it. But speaking of money, let's turn last to the federal government who are pitching from Justin Trudeau new money for healthcare and the provinces. They're talking about a nearly $200 billion deal for the next 10 years. Most of that is money that has already been promised, but there's $46 billion of new spending on the table, which once you start to think about how many provinces and how long that is actually isn't as big of a number as I think the provinces really wanted to see. Yeah, it averages out to about so for BC, um, for BC it averages out to about six hundred million dollars a year, six billion dollars over the next ten years, and so it's going. It's nowhere near the four billion or more that the province was hoping for to have added on an annual basis, and so it'll be interesting to see whether the government accepts this. EB was definitely disappointed it. He called the proposal physically limited, um, which was definitely uh, amusing. But also, the premiers went out expecting a much bigger offer than this. Uh, 
understand the federal government wanting specific details of where this money is going to go, data sharing, all of this. But it really was the lowest offer that the federal government could put on the table, given the circumstances. And I know Dick said in his remarks that any money is better than no money. And it brings uh, the provinces up to around 24% um, that the federal government is pledging towards the total health care bill. The provinces were hoping for much more than that at 35%. I do think BC will take it and then push for more money. I also, It'll also be interesting to see what's included in the bilateral agreements uh, because it likely will be like childcare in which there's going to be 13 separate agreements as opposed to one master agreement. And BC is really pushing for specific investments into mental health and addictions, um, long-term care. And so it's really those side deals that I think will be definitive in terms of how happy the province is with this deal in terms of the baseline. They're not very happy, but they can accept it if they get those other items addressed that they want in the bilateral deals. Yeah, I remember seeing some commentary on Trudeau's offer and it flagged and I don't have this in front of me, but it flagged that Aaron O'Toole was offering more in the last federal election from the Conservative Party, which says a lot. But I think Trudeau's style is, as you're talking about, to like one-on-one divide and conquer. And I get the strategy, but it also like offends me a bit in terms of just like how the Canada Health Act and healthcare in this country was designed to work so that rather than just the federal government setting like a baseline and giving everyone the money to make sure we meet that. They're just like, well, the baseline is going to be slightly different in every province. And it's just going to end up that way because of federalism. And it's, I think it weakens the Canada Health Act. And that makes me sad, just on a personal ideological point of view. Yeah, But I won't push you to uh, comment on that other than more just, I don't know, the politics of it. And Yeah, I do think it's a lot Bottom line, it's a lot less than the provinces were asking for. Um, Francois Legault of Quebec was asked what swear word he used um, when he was given the proposal. Um, He declined to answer that question, um, but probably sensibly. But it is an issue because provinces across the country are dealing with huge healthcare problems. It's not just a BC issue as much as we talk about the healthcare issue in BC, it's across the country. And yes, it's not going to be solved by simply by more money. But more money can be used if used correctly to fix some of the issues happening in the provinces. And I don't believe the federal government came to the table with an issue, with a proposal that will will address that. And yeah, we'll have to see how it goes moving forwards. The uh, it was originally supposed to be tomorrow, uh, Friday, uh, that the premiers were supposed to meet virtually to consider the federal government's offer. But I'm I'm now hearing that it's going to actually happen on Monday, which makes sense given that EB is going from Victoria to Surrey to Chilliwack tomorrow. So he's got a busy day ahead of him, and it makes sense that it's being moved to Monday. But interesting to see what 
Yeah, the, the whole back and forth is going to be tough for the next few months. I know Alberta's going to an election soon as well, and I'm not even paying attention to what's going on further east than that. But this back and forth will definitely be something we'll watch over the coming weeks. And, you know, it's important for all Canadians that we get something that helps everyone. And obviously, this isn't me trying to, like, let the provinces off the hook for their own management issues or refusal to spend what they need to spend but it's how the country works in this like slapstick federalist way where everyone pitches in and everyone tries to not do their job so here we are still fighting over the same pennies for sure and well i think we'll end it there alec it was great talking to you today maybe can you tell listeners where they can find you, where they can subscribe to BC Today? All of the usual plugs. For sure. So happy to plug my daily newsletter of everything BC politics, which is uh, British Columbia Today. Um, usually shortened to BC Today. No, we are not the CBC podcast. Um, we are different. We provide... Uh, long-form newsletter for people in terms of everything that happens in BC politics in the day, everything from government announcements, um, where is government funding going, to the top story of the day, and what is the Premier doing on any given day. So definitely check us out there. And then for me personally, um, my Twitter account is um, always always open, uh, at Lace and B. Alec. Um, and yeah, that's where you can that's where you can find me um, outside of my professional little bubble. So yeah, go to BritishColumbiaToday.ca and you'll get right on that newsletter and see the latest. It does cost money, but you can get some free articles on the website. And I think we used to have a promo code, but you can get a free trial there. So go sign up for Alex's free trial at BritishColumbiaToday.ca. Thanks again for joining us. And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playtoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Playtoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening.